Hey, everybody. Welcome back to One-on-One, -on -One, New York's longest-running sports call-in show. I'm Dylan Balsamo alongside my friend Andrew Galata with you right now for this wonderful conversation we are about to have. He's a graduate of Fordham University and Fordham Prep, served in the Air Force during the Korean War, and that is just the beginning of his life. So much more to talk about after that with the New York Times, with the New York Giants, with the NYPD, an incredible life. We're going to talk to one of the most active, in my opinion, non-genarians, and it's Mr. Robert Daly. How's it going? It is going fine. And, and I, that's the first time I've heard that word applied to me. It's kind of a shock. Well, I, it's a, it might be a shock, but it's also quite the achievement. So I hope that's at least something to be proud of as well. You know, what's curious, when I was growing up, anybody 50 was over the hill. And now we can live to this age and still be with it. I mean, I'm not walking with a cane or crutches and I'm fairly in, what was I gonna say, with it still. And that didn't happen in the old days. I don't know why. Well, I, we're, we're very grateful that, that you're here with us and you, know, you bring that up. So let's, let's start right up with that. Um, you know, there, not, a, not a ton of people at, at your age are perhaps at the, uh, we'll say, spry level that you are. Uh, what is your active daily routine to try and maintain that? Well, when I'm doing, when I'm writing, which, by the way, is nearly all the time because there are, even now there are letters to write. Uh, I'm trying to write poetry. Yesterday, I worked all day on the stanza of a poem. And I finally got it just the way I wanted it and pushed the button and managed to erase it. And so I spent all morning before you came on trying to find the damn thing. I never did find it. Then I tried to reconstruct it. So, you know, one is busy even at this age if one wants to be. And, and writing poetry is a thrilling thing. Uh, you know, I make jokes about I'm going to sell each one of them for a million dollars. Well, you know as well as I, I'm not going to sell any of them for anything. There's no money in poetry and never was. And I wonder if even Shakespeare made a, made a living. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's great fun to do. It resembles in my head crossword puzzles. You're trying to fit things together. You're trying to find rhymes. Poetry must rhyme. I'm not interested in the modern poets that you can't read and I can't read. Uh, I'm interested in, in poetry that has a, a feeling to it, that makes a point, that rhymes. I never felt meter was very important because you can have a long line followed by a short line for the effect, the punch that it gives. Anyway, I'm busy, yes. So obviously, uh, you know, you've been throughout your whole life extremely busy. Like just we were talking just before, uh, you know, Dylan came on and it was just you're talking all year, uh, you know, how you drove what, 250 miles to something that, you know, didn't uh, exist, an event that didn't exist. Is that something that you were busy, obviously, throughout your whole life? Do you try to keep that same level of obviously not to the same extent, but still that same level to keep your mind busy and then also active life as well? You know, people seem to think that if you write a novel or two, not only did you make a fortune writing them, but they, that the royalties keep pouring in afterwards. And none of that is true. You do not make a fortune as a, as a freelance writer. If you're lucky, you get by. And, but to get by, you have to work all the time. I, I finished Prince of the City, for instance, and the very next day started a new book. 
I didn't get paid much for Prince of the City. And it was, I even hesitated before I took the job, thinking I can't afford to do this. But the, uh, eventually it sold to the movies. It sold to the movies for $500,000. My God, where'd that come from? Wow, look at me. And, and after that, a number of them sold to the movies. And that's where the money was. The money and the royalties that are still coming in, but they're coming in and uh, you know, selling two books a day or something like that. First thing I do when I wake up in the morning is call up my uh, Kindle payoff sheet to see how many I sold the night before. Silly, but that's what writers are. You write to be read. And it means a lot, even, even two readers yesterday is lovely. And at the end of a year, there'll be some several hundred, big deal. It's not for the money. I talked about, I often talked about uh, every, all of us have to make a living every day of their lives. Even writers who supposedly get millions for writing novels and the royalties pour in for the rest of their lives, which is, I tell you, that's nonsense. So each time I finished a book, I had to start another. And that meant often, uh, you know, running around trying to get contracts. The book I want to write next is going to be, let us say, The Cruel Sport. I go to my publisher, who isn't the slightest interest. I laid all my photos out on the floor, and he wasn't the slightest, didn't have the slightest interest. Mm -hmm. So then I go on to another publisher and do the same, <clears throat> and finally find one who's willing to take a chance. Because photo books, as I'm sure you know, are very expensive to produce. I had another book about bullfighting called The Swords of Spain, with the same number of photos of mine about bullfighting. Unfortunately, there's no big market for bullfighting like there is for uh, Grand Prix racing. Grand Prix racing has caught the imagination of the world. Bullfighting is, is important only in Spain and some Latin American countries. And I've never made an extra nickel out of that book, which believe me is, I think, better than the cruel sport in terms of the, the pictures and the writing. Talking here with Robert Daly here on WFUV's one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, something we were also curious about is, you know, obviously you talk about uh, the life of a writer. You have spent your whole life around writers. Your, your father, uh, Arthur Daly, won a, a Pulitzer Prize as a sports writer. And for lack of a better way to ask this, what is it like to be the son of a Pulitzer Prize winner? You know, to me, he wasn't a Pulitzer Prize winner. He was dad. And I think that's the normal reaction. I didn't realize until many years afterwards what a big deal this must have been for him, how thrilled he must have been. I know that at the time the letters poured in and he answered every one of them himself. Thank you for, for congratulating me, et cetera. Uh, all of that, when you're living in the same house with this person, you hardly see. Nothing has changed since yesterday. He's still dad. He always was dad. Uh, and I didn't realize even, you know, I go out into the world to make a living. And my father really technically didn't raise a finger. He never set up an interview for me or praised me to anybody that might count. But all the doors were open, which I never realized till afterwards. Arthur Daly's son uh, wants to come in and, and offer us something. Well, let's talk to him. Maybe he's got something. 
And so that was another stroke of luck for which I'm very grateful. Yeah, and then obviously, um, you know, with your father being this, you know, great writer, amazing sports writer, was that something that led you to try to be an aspiring sports writer? Was that one of your main influences to maybe the way you wrote or what, what you wanted to do? I don't think so. It was, however, an avenue that was open to me. And I didn't have any others open to me. So I took it. Uh, and, and as I say, I found that uh, when I approached sports editors or editors of magazines or whatever, they were willing to listen to me. And then all I had to do after that is produce something they would publish. And so I worked some of these early things. I worked them over and over and over for, for days, weeks even. And they did get published. Very, very few, one or two, is all I can remember, were rejected in all those years. But I learned to set the, the sale up in advance. I go to you as an editor of something, how would you like an article on such and such? And you tell me, nah, we had that last week. And I say, well, okay, how about this? And finally, throwing these ideas out is one you'd like to have. Don't forget, editors are always searching for ideas. They have to fill their magazine or their, their book, whatever, every day. So you can get in with your ideas. I didn't realize that. I thought they were being nice to me. But uh, anyway, I would go in there and pitch these ideas until they latched onto one. They were all ideas that interested me. I'd always be curious about whatever it was that I was offering. What can I, I'd like to find out more about this. Now, if you are curious, that's the most central attribute for a freelance writer. Without that, you, you're not gonna make it. If you're curious, if you're dying to know why and how something or someone works, it's a terrific metier. You find out all this stuff. I'm not saying, for the most part, you don't get close to your subjects. I mean, they all, coming to somebody's house to write about them is not enough to make the guy wanna be your friend for life. So in a whole career, I've made one or two very close friends. I wrote an article about tenors, for instance. It was in Life magazine, which was a big magazine at the time, and wound up being friends with Franco Corelli, with Richard Tucker, with James McCracken. Uh, and McCracken, I, I later wrote a book with McCracken and his wife, and we wound up friends for life. I made the eulogy at Jim's funeral. But that's rare. That doesn't often happen. It happened that time, that's it. Uh, but for the rest, you satisfy your curiosity. It's, it's thrilling to satisfy your curiosity. And you go home and you write up on the guy, write the guy, write the story, and you make a living, which is, again, the most important thing. Unless you make a living, you can't go on with it. You have to find some other line of work. Again, here with Robert Daly here on One on One, Dylan Balsamo, Andrew Galata here with him. Uh, now, talking about specifically your coming of age, you go to Fordham Prep, you end up at Fordham University as well finish up there and serve in the Air Force, and then you're trying to make it as a writer. And you, you talk about, you know, feeding your curiosities and finding new ideas. How is it that you would go about 
uh, searching for new things to be curious about, new ideas to have? Where would you see, where would you find them? Where could you find them? You know, when I was starting out, I was desperate to get ideas and I didn't know about pitching or anything else. And I met a freelance writer called Martin Gross, who was a little older than I, and he made his living as a freelance writer. And I said, how do you do it? <laughs> and he said, well, I go through the newspaper and I note down ideas that interest me that would make a story. And then I call up the editor and I say, let's have lunch tomorrow. And uh, I pitch the idea to him and he, sends, he gives, me, gives me the assignment. So that's what you should do. Call up some editors and invite them to lunch. Don't worry about it. They'll pay for it. That's what they do. I didn't believe him, of course. And I didn't have the nerve to call up these august editors. But eventually you find someone, an in, as, as I did. I, I wrote, uh, well, I paid my own way to the Winter Olympics in 1956 on the grounds that the Times would pay me $50 for any article they published. I think they figured to publish three or four, and I wrote 14. No expenses, so that covered the expenses, and then some. All right, then I took one of these articles and took it around a magazine saying, I'd like to write a full-length article about this guy. And finally, I found a magazine that wanted it. So I did the article. Now I can take the finished article and show it to other magazines and say, I'm a professional writer. This is what I want to do next. Are you interested? And you get turned down a lot. I guess I have a pretty thick skin because rejections never stopped me. I knew they were coming very often. I expected them in some cases and in others it was a shock. But nonetheless, rejections you have to take. You have to ignore pain, if any, and go on with your, your pitch and pitch somebody else. So that's how you do it. And I'm hey. ever grateful to Martin Gross for, for telling me in a paragraph how he did it, and then I could do that too. Thank you so much for sitting down with us again. And I, I wanted to jump into um, and, and ask about your time with the Giants as the PR director, because obviously the NFL was a lot different back then than it is today. And it's not the, you know, the big billion dollar uh, business that it is. And I feel like back then you probably got very, very close to all these larger than life legends and Hall of Famers, whether it be Frank Gifford or Sam Huff and these big Giants legends. What was the dynamic between a PR director and a player back then? And what was kind of the difference, maybe even with the media that were covering, you know, the Giants and really um, that team? Obviously, it was still the New York Giants popular, but it's not like the big NFL like it is today. <laughs> Listen, what you just said is, of course, true. I was the publicity director of the National of the New York Giants of the National Football League at the age of 23. At the time, nobody was interested in pro football. The biggest crowd... <laughs> was 30,000 people. In 1956, the Giants won the so-called World Championship. There were 5,000 empty seats in Yankee Stadium. No one was interested in what I had to sell. But I went on trying, and pro football from one year to the next exploded. And all of a sudden, I had an important job, and it was easy to place stories and get publicity and, and so on. So as far as knowing the players, I got very close to Kyle Rhodes. He came to dinner a few times. And uh, 
he was a very, very intelligent fellow. He wrote cartoons and short stories on the side, never dared show them to anybody, I think. But anyway, uh, less close, but still close to uh, Frank Gifford. Charlie Connolly and his wife came to see us when we were living in Nice one year. We all went out to Monte Carlo to dinner, et cetera. So I got close to a few of them, but um, I don't know what to say about it except that it was, they were friendships in some cases lasting. Rose wrote lasted many years. Uh, but I was interested in these guys and I knew all of the statistics, I knew all about them and I could get a journalist to write articles about them. And uh, they took me for granted, if at all, from the age of 23 to the age of 28, I worked for the Giants. And then I figured I can't, I wanna be a writer. I gotta get out of this and, and get onto a newspaper or something. So that's what I did. Here still with Robert Daly here on WFUV. Uh, now, an another question I have is, you know, you we would talk about your time with the Giants. Uh, you know, a a an odd place for someone to be if what they want to be is a writer, as would be the case to be the deputy commissioner of the New York Police Department. Those are those are both examples I think of, of things where uh, I'm curious about. It, how do you how do you wind up there? You know, obviously you talk about you know. You, your dad really had nothing to do with any kind of success you've had in your life. So like, how does these, were these happy accidents? Did the, you just be in the right place at the right time? What exactly happened? Look, I, I got sent by a magazine to write a profile of the police commissioner. And he was searching around for a deputy commissioner at the time. And one of the mayor's men said, men said to him, he's the guy. I didn't know the guy, I didn't know the mayor's guy and I didn't know the police commissioner. But it winds up, he, he offers me the job. And I didn't even know what it was. And I thought to myself, well, it's something new, might be exciting. And I took it. I remember the first couple of days sitting in this office with uh, institutional green walls and saying to myself, what in the hell am I doing here? How did this ever happen? Why am I here? And then I figured, well, as long as I'm here, what can I make of it? And it was pretty easy to make a lot of it. First of all, by getting to know all the people, which had never been done before. You might be amazed at that, but cops are fascinating people sometimes. And what they do is of course, fascinating. So I would go around in radio cars with cop with detectives in the night and I'd go up on rooftops for man with a gun runs. There was never a man with a gun any of the times I was on the roofs with cops, but uh, it was a very exciting thing to do. And uh, it was a fabulous year in the police department. There were a number of cops massacred, you know, assassinated. And the Black Liberation Army was in existence claiming all these killings. And there'd been a NAP, the NAP Commission investigating police corruption. So the Corruption was on everybody's mind. And I was right in the middle of this. And I just loved it. I, I would have, you know, sometimes I wonder why I'm not there still. I love that job so much and being in that spot. And uh, anyway, and then I was out again, looking for a writing job. And uh, so I offered 
police novels to various publishers and caught on with first one and then others. And so I began to write novels about it. I had learned a lot. I had a lot of details, a lot of facts, a lot of things that I'd been present for. One of the things I realized is that nobody had ever written anything about the police hierarchy. I'm not talking about a, a nonfiction story. I'm talking about fiction. And I'd been in all these executive conferences and listening to, you know, 50-year-old cops with stars on their shoulders discussing how you run an organization like that. Well, that's pretty dramatic. Can I, can I make something of that? Can I use that? Can I make that into a story? And I found that, yes, I can. And I did it. And it was a part of um, the police world, as I say, that nobody had ever done before. I don't know whether how much of that is luck and how much of it is just having to make a living every day. And then what I also wanted to ask about is that, you know, you had all these great experiences, whether it be with the NYPD or, um, you know, in foreign, you know, foreign sports like Grand Prix or Matador. And it seems like, you know, back then and so different from today, whereas articles, you know, writers, they can write, you know, in a few hours and they'll get the article published, these very short articles because people's attention spans, smaller social media, all that stuff. But back then, it seems like it was a lot more descriptive articles, takes long form articles. And was that something that would then you first write an article and then maybe, you know, you'd write a magazine long form article and then it would turn into a big book? Is that just something to be, be like as you got more inquisitive about it, talk to more people? Is that kind of the dynamic that it was, you know, in that era? Well, first of all, when I started living that life, I never wrote a word until I got an agreement, an assignment, sometimes a contract, and, and most of it with money up front. Uh, so it was, it was in many ways a business, but the writing part of it was just love, of having loved being in this milieu and being around these people and what can I do with it? Can I make that into a novel? If so, how? And, and it's got to be fresh. It's got to be something that hasn't been done before. Well, with that wide experience, you know, year after year inside the police department, uh, you, you have so much experience, you can, you can play with it, so to speak, and form it and, and manipulate it and use it for yourself. And that's what I did. So here with Robert Daly here on WFUV. Something I'm very curious about is you yourself, obviously, uh, it's very clear, a very curious person and, and you're interested in a lot of things and a lot of things uh, intrigue you and you like to pursue those. Um, and, and a question I often have for curious people is, are you, are you ever able to be satisfied with the work you've done and sit back and go, what a time I've had, or is it just on to the next thing? <laughs> well, as I say, Talking to you, I'm satisfied with what I did. It's very, very pleasing to realize you're interested. Maybe what I did was interesting. At the time, I, that idea never occurred to me. And the drive forward was curiosity about finding out about this stuff and then finding out ways to use it and to sell it, which I had to do anyway if I wanted to make a living and go on learning. There's, all of this is, is um, it's all interwoven. It's, it's, 
not as complex as it sounds. That's just the, the way that that's the way the world works. And and that's the way I worked it. And a question I had as, as uh, um, you know, you talk about people being interested in your work. And when someone comes up to you to, you know, when they want to adapt your your novel into a film, what's that process like? And, you know, do they like does it like I guess it maybe varies by a director or writer, but how much would they adapt the book and how much a say do you have it going into the film? And um, would you ever, you know, do you control those, those types of things when, you know, your novels are being, are being, you know, adapted to a film? If you sell a book to the movies, if you sign the contract, <clears throat> you take the check, you have no further leverage whatsoever. And most often the director doesn't want to speak to you. He won't even allow you on the set. The first one, I guess, was Prince of the City. And I called up Sidney Lumet, the director, and I said, you're starting shooting tomorrow. I want to be on the set there and, and watch. And he said, I wish you wouldn't, Bob. And I didn't. But that's normal, I later learned. Um, you don't own it anymore. They own it. And you have no right to say, how much of it are you going to use? You have no right to say, why did you distort this? You know, Year of the Dragon was my book and made into a movie. And I saw it finally. Actually, the, I read the screenplay and decided I was never going to see it. And one of my daughters said "Don't to her mother, don't let daddy see that film. Well, the director and the writer the writer was Oliver Stone, who was a big name in now in screenwriting. And uh, he used, he said, I, I, thinking about it, all of the really dramatic stuff that is in the book, Year of the Dragon, is not in the movie. He threw it all away and made up his own story. And I think I've found several times that there's almost nothing of mine left in these moving pictures that the director, the writer, made up their own stories out of it. And you have no right to complain. You cashed the check, did you not? So shut up and step back and write another book. And with luck, sell it to the movies too. And they'll, they'll maltreat it by your standards. I mean, you the dragon made my reputation in Europe. I hated the film and considered it very badly done. The French loved it. All of Europe loved it. My price in France skyrocketed. Uh, so what are you supposed to think? What are you supposed to do? We have one more uh, question for you before we, uh, we let you go. Something uh, I'm, I'm really interested in is uh, with, with all the works that you've written, with all the time that you write, and I'm sure you experience this more now with, with poetry, which is perhaps a little more uh, on the um, abstractly creative side. Uh, how often do you get writer's block, if at all? You know, I have never had writer's block. Wow. Never. And I'm curious about people who do. I've always figured, all you have to do is sit down and say, well, what am I trying to say? What is this about? And how am I going to do it? And then do it. And the writer, I get plenty of writer's block in uh, writing poetry, that, which is to say, I have no idea how to, what to do next. 
that never happened writing novels. I, I often th thought about it and wondered, am I peculiar or what? What's going on here? But um, what am I trying to say? What's holding me back? What do I do next? And then do it. Dissect what you're trying to do if necessary in your head. Figure out why you're blocked. But writer's block has to be because you don't know where to go next. And if you can miss, if you can get away with, you know, get rid of that, you're okay. So no, I've never had writer's block. Well, this has just been an incredible uh, chance to talk to you. We could really edit this conversation into any order we want and it'll still be fascinating. Uh, we're, we're so grateful that you've joined us. Thank you. Well, you're very kind. You've all been very kind there. Thank you. That's author and Fordham grad and polymath, if, uh, if I will be, <laughs> use the term, Mr. Robert Daly. This has been one-on-one. -on -one. We'll be back with just a little more in a little while. So stick around.